I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, and welcome to the Ghibli Attack the podcast that bites through the buffet of films from the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm not even full. So Jake, welcome back once more to the Ghibli Attack. This week, something a little bit different, right? Yeah. So we've actually talked in the past about maybe branching out to do very specific episodes, maybe about color or music, or in this case, food in Ghibli films. And we were very lucky to welcome Ed Gamble onto the podcast to talk about some Ghibli food. Ed is a wonderful stand-up comedian and podcast host. Uh, The reason he is here is because one of his podcasts, Off Menu, uh, which you may well have listened to, is all about food. Uh, But he also has another podcast called Lifers, which is available on Spotify. And that one's about heavy metal, which is slightly different, but actually ends up coming into play in this podcast episode as well. We tasked Ed with coming up with a perfect menu of food made entirely of the delicious items that appeared in Ghibli films. We also had a Shinkansen ride down memory lane talking about all of the food that we ate in Japan as well. As well as that, we also came up with our own Ghibli menu of favorites and would love it if you sent us yours as well. So what is your dream Ghibli starter, main and dessert? Email us at ghibli at little.studios.com or head to our Twitter at Ghibliotech where we've made up a little menu card to fill out. Uh, Now, there was actually some non-food related chat as well. Yeah, stick around for the metal chat. I'm throwing up the devil horns right now. (laughs) And make sure you check out Ed's podcast off menu for the food chat and lifers for the heavy metal chat. But now it's time to open the doors of the Ghibliotech to Ed Gamble. Ed, welcome to the Ghibliotech. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Very exciting. Yeah, I'd like to think that this was some careful piece of audio city planning that you with your imaginary public 
building in off menu that we, we we're just a few steps along the way with our public library of japanese films um, <laughs> exactly i don't who else would we add to that are there any other podcasts who you could incorporate into the audio city i mean you'd i'm assuming you'd have to have the leicester square theater um, but that does actually exist yeah yeah i suppose so yeah that's the, that's the real downfall of uh of that that herring podcast is that the actual location is real <laughs> yeah uh, i mean i'm assuming that there'll be enough podcast fans out there that they could come up with a fictional podcast location monopoly board um, um but I, I wouldn't dare think who would be f- sitting on old camp road no, <laughs> I also think we've probably got enough between us to have an imaginary restaurant and then an imaginary film library. I think that's all you need for a, for a good day, isn't it, really? Absolutely. Um, so, Ed, we normally at this point in our show, we talk about the context and history of the film that we're going to be talking about. Um, obviously, we don't have a film to talk about. We've got a special guest instead. Um, but, Michael, uh, if you'll refresh listeners with your own personal context and history. What was your first time with Studio Ghibli? So my first Studio Ghibli film was Princess Mononoke. And wow, it's coming up to 20 years ago now, almost, probably next year's the anniversary, because I watched it with some friends at home before going out to see the first Harry Potter movie. I remember that very clearly. So I mean, we can actually pinpoint that almost to the week of release of the Harry Potter film. And that blew my mind and then picked up every Ghibli film since. And yours, Jake, was for the podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, there's there's about forty podcasts out there that document my own journey. Um, but Ed, more importantly, when did you first encounter the films of Studio Ghibli? I mean, it's it's relatively recently, I would say, and also I would say, you know, by by no means do I consider myself uh, an authority or an expert or even just have a broad knowledge of of the films. Like I, I've certainly not seen all of them. Uh, this, in many ways, this podcast is my worst nightmare because it's two people who know a lot about a subject, and then I'm going to try and join in with a conversation. I feel like I'm at school and everyone's talking about football, and I'm just going, "Yeah, no," and it was, and he scored the goal. Um, <laughs> I, I just really like what what I've seen. So, I mean, it's probably since I met my fiance. So, me and my fiance have been going out for ten years. So, it's probably somewhere within that ten year period because she's a, a big fan. Uh, of Studio Ghibli and introduced me to those films, but was was very cautious about introducing me to any films um, because I think I think you are, aren't you? If you if there's something that you love, you almost don't want to show it to someone that you've started to love because what if they don't like it and that is a crack that appears in the relationship? You think if you're re- if you really like something and then you show it to someone and they don't like it, is that a sign that? you shouldn't be hanging out together. So I think she was a little bit reluctant initially. Um, so it's probably within the last five years. Um, and I pro- I'm a bit of a basic Ghibli bitch, I'd say. I'm not, I've, I've not dug very deep. I've probably seen the main ones. <laughs> uh, uh, so yeah, so it's probably, it's, it's through her and yeah, she's, she's obsessed with them. So we've, we've seen quite a few together now. And it's one of the few film crossovers, uh, times that we cross over with things that we actually like. It's funny you mention that it's you're almost reluctant to share these films and you talk about it almost like a, a fiancé relationship. That's pretty much what this entire podcast has been. <laughs> me sharing my favourite films with Jake and hoping that he likes them. Luckily, I think this far he's at least 
got some Stockholm syndrome going on or something. Yeah, although it's it's funny you mention Princess Mononoke, Michael, um, because I feel like that that's like the first crack in our marriage of how much you love that film and think it's the bringing together of all of these great ideas from Hayao Miyazaki. And that was one of the ones that we've caused controversy by by me just thinking, it's fine. <laughs> but Ed, what what films were you bringing to the table then in this great crossover and bringing together film tastes? Well, I think basically my uh, taste in films is almost the exact opposite of everything my fiance in, uh, enjoys because I think she, especially with Studio Ghibli, is, it, it enjoys sort of uh, comforting films. Uh, warm films, films that have a lot of heart. And I like quite a lot of violent films, horror films, films where you don't necessarily feel like you have a heart at the end of them. Films that end bleakly. I enjoy that. Mm-hmm. That's what fills me with warmth. Um, so she's she's definitely not into that. So if we watch a film together, it'll more than likely be Ghibli or I don't know if it, Disney's a dirty word here, uh, but Disney, uh, like something something we can all enjoy. I, I think uh, you might get along with my girlfriend because over the quarantine period, she's suddenly got really into just gory horror. And so <laughs> I've been having to do one Ghibli and one Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It balances quite nicely, though, I think. I think that's a good double bill. Yeah, one for the kids. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, now, Ed, on your podcast, uh, Off Menu, you ask your guests to curate a perfect meal based on the best food they've had in their lives. And I know that you yourself, you're you're not even close to deciding what your perfect menu would be at this point. Absolutely not. I think I think it's a very cruel question to ask someone. <laughs> uh, yeah, this. I mean, the question you're about to ask me, I think, is is much more doable because it's we're we're choosing a narrower spectrum. So go for it. Exactly. Um, so as we're talking Ghibli, and th- they are one of the masters of putting food on film, um, we thought we'd try and craft the perfect Ghibli menu instead. Now, th- there are a few courses that you might normally prepare on off menu that we'll probably pass up on. Uh, yeah. Not a lot of sparkling or still water chat, not a lot of poppadom or bread chat within the Ghibli verse, sadly. Um, so we'll stick to the normal three course meal, I think. Um, but well, you could have sparkling water and then have just like a little ponyo in every bubble, right? But then you wouldn't want to drink it. You'd want to down them no, all. No, you wouldn't. Right? <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't think that through, lads. Sorry. <laughs> that's, bringing, that's bringing in your horror movie sensibilities yeah, know, already. Right? <laughs> there we, we we've got it there. Ed Gamble wants to drink ponyo alive. <laughs> Hey, well, that's actually, you know, that's an interesting question. We've not heard that one before. What's it like to drink Ponyo? We have asked, what do you think Totoro may taste like? That's oh, a question no. We've asked I mean, that, I, I, that's upset me. <laughs> <laughs> it's unacceptable. <laughs> so if you had to pick a starter, because there are so many great examples of great, beautiful dishes of food in all of their films, what are you going to go for? So I think this was probably the first Ghibli film that I, I saw and was shown uh, and with my fiance watching me throughout, uh, just to check to see if I was reacting to it in the right way, uh, it's almost certainly because I th- I'd say I think about this dish daily. Uh, the soup dumplings in the buffet in Spirited Away, mm. um, which is a scene that I watch and only look at the food and think, "Wow, doesn't that food look amazing?" Seemingly ignoring that it's it's turning two people into actual pigs. <laughs> like that that is something that passes me by that's very much secondary to how delicious the buffet looks and just the way the dad sucks down a massive soup dumpling just 
looks amazing. It's quite that's what's amazing about Ghibli food. I think is it, it looks realistic and fantastical all at the same time. Like it, yeah. it looks delicious, and you would want to eat that. But also, it's massive, and no human could really suck it down like that. Well, and you look at that scene, and the dad's strength in his chopsticks. You can imagine the 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 lifts he's been doing uh, to yeah. get that strength because he is he is pretty much lifting full dishes between two twigs. There, it's very I, impressive. I think when it comes to food, I could do that. I think my strength is increased to that of an ant. Uh, I could lift 10 times my own body weight in dishes. Um, but also just the way the soup dumplings like are so full and they're sort of hang- they're hanging down. I think I'd, I'd not had real soup dumplings and I'd saw that and I thought they were delicious. They looked delicious and then went on to have real soup dumplings and was very disappointed by the amount of liquid that was in them. Well, and I'd hope you'd maybe cherish them a bit more than he does because, I mean, he's just throwing them in left, right and centre. Uh, and I feel like maybe you'd be slightly more of a connoisseur about it but we all get like that at a buffet right if there's that <laughs> amount of choice mm. then you don't even think about the individual things you're eating you're almost you've got your eye on the next thing and you you've got to get that out of the way just so you get through the whole thing so i don't know i very much i very much connect with the the gluttony in that scene as well i would watch someone eat that buffet and see them turn into a pig and know that's what what happens and then i would then go and eat the buffet well and i don't know about you michael I think a buffet is where so many people in the West would have encountered Asian food for the first time. Oh, certainly, yeah. Um, all you can eat buffets. There's one in Chinatown in Birmingham I used to go to all the time at university. You've brought back some very happy <laughs> memories there. But also, yeah, we discover Asian food, but also we discover how little decorum we have when faced with <laughs> all you can eat buffets. Yeah, God. Um, all right, Michael, what would what would you be starting your dream Ghibli meal with? So... So this is why I'd be terrible on something like off-menu, because I'm not really a foodie, and I don't really think about things in this compartmentalized way. Also, I don't think Ghibli has many foodstuffs that could be eaten as a starter. So I was thinking more a light dish that could go up top. And it's not necessarily presented in the film as being something very tasty. It's presented almost as something um, that the heroine of the movie is just making do with. And that's the omelettes in Kiki's Livery Service where she makes this nice little omelette and there's a little sausage on the side. I think you could make a small plate version of that that could be a nice little appetizer to begin with. I don't know, does that, does that fit the brief well? No, I think so. Yeah, yeah, I reckon so. I, I, and I think that that's what Ghibli's really good at as well, is the it's sim- simple looking food where it'd be simple tasting, but it's just wholesome and it's it's made with such love and you see the you see the way it's being made and the way it's being put together or it's being presented to someone as a sign that they're looking after the, uh, you or something like that it's just mm. it it just fills you with such warmth i think and that and that the sort of omelet sausage thing it looks really simple if someone gave that to me in real life i'd probably be like oh, come on spice this up a bit where's the hot sauce <laughs> but it, just within that context i think it's it's a wonderful thing yeah do you have one jake yeah, I was thinking about my full meal and I realized that based on my main, I wouldn't be having rice. And so I needed to get rice in at this point because that's one of my favorite things about Japanese food is just the rice. Um, and so I've gone for the bento box from My Neighbor Totoro, which has just a little portion of rice, a single sardine, uh, some edamame beans and some pickled ginger. Hmm. And I just thought that that will set you up nicely right there. 
it, yeah, it's simplistic beauty, isn't it? It's just that's what what's great about bento boxes. It's it's everything's uh, portioned out and everything's made to look very nice. I don't know if you you guys uh, got many bento boxes on trains when you went to Japan, which is like a huge thing. Um, if you get the bullet trains, you can go to the stations and they sell like hundreds of different types of bento box so you can eat them on the train. And that was some of the best meals we had, I think, were getting a bento box from the train station and then getting on a uh, getting on a long train journey and just just amazing. Well, you're, you're, you're giving us a reason to go back to Japan because actually when we went, we only stayed in Tokyo. Oh, okay. So while we did get the train out into various regions, we didn't actually go outside of the, the metropolis. So bullet train is something I think we should go back and and do. And yeah, get a bento you, de- box. You, you definitely should. And the, yeah, and the bento boxes are incredible. I mean, you could if you just want to go back to Tokyo again, you can easily just buy a cheap ticket, go through into the train station, buy a bento box, and come back out again. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. We made the most of the train station food because that is one of the wonderful things about Tokyo is that. The, the train stations basically contain everything that you need. Like it's got your food, leisure, transport, hotel if you need it. But there's genuinely amazing food there. And I think one one of my favorite meals and just kind of in that world of starters and small dishes was when we just plowed into a 7-Eleven and grabbed lots of little things like onigiri and buns and sandos and just went to the hotel room and had a picnic on the bed of all these little things. And that's more in the Japanese way of thinking about food, of having lots of little bits rather than a traditional starter, as we've kind of treated this. But Ed, what what were those some of those lovely little bits that you would have had when you were out there that you found? Oh, remember? I mean, I mean, the the Seven Elevens are just insane. Like we went to the Seven Eleven like every day, or Lawson's is the other one, which is like just incredible snacks and just attention to detail and actual pride in stuff <laughs> in stuff they were selling if you compare the 7-elevens in japan to the american 7-elevens it's just it's, it's incomparable isn't it um but the we had the a katsu sando from 7-eleven um and we were going from uh we were going to uh miyajima which is a temple island um and we stayed on there for a, for a couple of nights and you got to get the ferry across uh, and we were starving, but we were running for a ferry, and we just managed to nip into the Seven Eleven. And it was raining outside, and we just grabbed some stuff quickly off the shelf, and we got a katsu sando, and we ate that on a ferry in the rain, and it was so delicious. And that's one of my one of my best memories from Japan. And katsu sandos are just insane. I think it's my favorite sandwich. I want to put it out there, which is a bit that's oh. a big swing, but that's a that's my favorite sandwich, a katsu sando. Not doesn't have to be from Seven Eleven. Uh, there's a restaurant in London uh, called uh, Shack Fu Yu that does a that does a nice katsu sando, but I think yeah, the soft, cheap bread, and then big thick bit, bit of pork, so good. Oh, the bread in a sando is it's kind of like going back to being an infant as well because it is just pillowy white with the crusts cut off. You think because you're in another country, you're embracing the culture. It's fine. I'm not being a big baby that needs my crusts cut off. Um, and it is literally baby like it's it's milk bread, right? So they use they use milk making it. So it is it's even more babyish than that. <laughs> but they're they're very good sandwiches. Um, yeah. All right. Let, let's crack on to the big one then. Uh, so your main dish out of everything that you could get from a Ghibli film, what are you going to be going for? Again, I don't know if this is basic or not, but um, it's the ramen from Ponyo, um, which I've only seen mm. relatively recently, but it is the most satisfying dish in any film ever, I think. I think it's it's everything you want. The ham just looks incredible. 
the perfect little egg, and you can even see the fat pooling on on the surface of the broth. I just think it looks delicious. And again, I think it's context of when it's when it's been given as well. Like it's it, it you know being welcomed into a home and you know eating the same thing as someone else and you know being part of someone's family. I think it's a really it's a warming dish and it's a very warming scene as well. I think it's uh, just, and I love ramen. Mm. I could honestly eat ramen every day. I ate ramen on the way back from Tokyo in the airport at 9am and it, it's some of the best ramen I've ever had. Just a little hatch opened up and started serving and it was just incredible. Nine in the morning. Perfect. Yeah. We, um, we were, went to a place called Hijiri that was near our hotel and uh, producer Steph and I, we, we splashed out on the premium pork uh and my god i think i do think that is one of the best things i've ever eaten that bowl of ramen and it is that as you say that that satisfaction but that warmth that instantly comes with it and you really like it's a comforting dish in itself wherever you might have it but in ponyo when you can feel the wet and the cold and that if you are a little kid and you can't you get that motherly gift of a warm broth in front of you you absolutely feel it and that's that's something that's so clear within so much of Ghibli's use of food is that I think we romanticize it so much and we feel like we can taste it so much, not necessarily because of how it looks, but seeing how it's been prepared as well. And that's the joy of it that we don't really see in Western films as well. And that that satisfaction comes with seeing all the work that's gone into making it in the first place. Yeah, you're right. I think, yeah, uh, you, yeah, you really don't see that in, in Western films at all, that you'll just see someone you know, throw a dish down or whatever. There's, but you can't see all the love and warmth that's got into it. I think there's maybe, maybe that film Chef. You see that quite a lot, but I mean, it's literally called yeah. Chef, so they can't really not do that. One, there's one classic scene in The Godfather where they're showing how to make the the like the ultimate pasta dish. Mm. You got to get your cans of tomatoes and your your meatballs, and but I suppose it is wet for those cultures or communities where food is at the heart of everything. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, that definitely the definitely the ramen. And I've not had good ramen in ages. Although I think that's one thing that we sort of have got in the UK. Like I think there are some good good places to get ramen, um, which is why we didn't really have it a lot when we were in Japan until the like the last day when I was like, we, we've got to get it because because you're only there for a certain amount of time. You're like, we've got to hit up the things that we can't get in the UK. We've got to find new things. Uh, yeah. I tried the sukumen, the dipping ramen, which is amazing as well. It's just a really intense broth, but then you just get cold or warm dry noodles next to it and then you you dip it in yourself and it's just, yeah, fantastic. That sounds lovely. All right, Michael, you've got a main dish to pick. What are you going for? So I, I wonder whether I seeded this by talking about The Godfather, but and I, I'm, I'm very aware that I think all of my dishes are technically Western dishes, <laughs> even though they're presented so beautifully in these films. It's from Porco Rosso, and it's when he chows down with his spaghetti bolognese. It's the fact that he's wearing his bib, and it just looks like such an inviting dish there. But, but it's true, I think that so, so many Ghibli dishes are, could be put here. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Ponyo, Ed, because Ponyo also has one of the best sandwiches on, on film. The, the ham sandwich more, more that is earlier in the film. Yeah. The, you know, it's so good that it makes a supernatural fish girl in love with ham forever. <laughs> well, what were you thinking, Jake? Uh, well, Ed beat me to the punch there. It's, um, it's the ramen from Ponyo for me. It's got to mm. be. But, and what I think is amazing about the ramen dish from Ponyo, when you 
think about it, it's actually a really simple thing that actually, if we were trying to make it here, wouldn't be that great at all. It's it's a bowl of water with some just basic noodles put in. And then if we just took our our packet of sandwich ham that we've got from Sainsbury's <laughs> and uh, threw like a few clumps into a bowl with some super noodles uh, and a boiled egg, it's probably not going to be that great. But there is, it's all in the presentation and this just looks incredible. And I love the way that they bite into the ham and it kind of pulls away. Yeah. It's, it's ham, but not as we know it. Can I flag a runner up for main course then? Off, off the back of that, we just said, Jake, about we could make this ourselves at home, but it won't be, you know, a fraction as magical. And that's the, the full fried breakfast yeah. from Hell's Moving Castle. That was my that was my runner up as well. It's uh, that I think about that a lot. We've got I think we probably bought I think we must have bought it from the Ghibli Museum a calcifer mm-hmm. uh, fridge magnet that we've got on the right. oven hood. So every time I'm making like bacon and eggs or whatever, I can look at that and go, "Well, where do you find bacon that thick?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And everyone focuses on that amazing shot of the pan frying away and you know the fat bubbling everything. But it's the fact that Markle really loves it in the following scene where he's tearing into it the eggs and the bacon. Oh, I think it just looks so satisfying. They've, they've done magical work with eggs. There are mm. a number of different eggs across all the films that all look incredible. And also, weirdly, something that I only recently noticed about Calcifer is that he eats the eggshells and mm, yeah. really enjoys them licking his fire lips just some some lovely lovely eggshells um i th- i think an honorable mention in in that category as well and one that you maybe might put aside once you've thought too much about it is uh kiki's herring and pumpkin pie which it looks delicious but might avoid it I think yeah, I, I discounted that very quickly. I think just because it looks beautiful, it looks amazing with the, like the fish in the top of it and stuff. But herring and herring in a pie is absolutely unacceptable, as far as I'm concerned. Swing, swing and a miss from Ghibli there. Sorry. <laughs> um, now, just thinking quickly back to uh, times in Tokyo, and we fa- we do sound like old bores in uh, going through your family picture album to tell you about your holiday. Um, but the katsu curry, which has been recently voted the number one favorite curry in the UK now, uh, the accessibility to katsu curry in Japan is a wonder. Hmm. I'm not sure we had any. Oh. Sorry to disappoint. I I think, you know what? I don't think I like katsu curry that much. I find it, I find the sauce a bit sort of overbearing. But I've not had it in years, so I should probably like try it again. But I'm so I feel like I'm letting the side down massively here that I went to Japan and then didn't have a, a katsu curry. I mean, Michael said that he's not much of a food guy, um, and the one group chat he's got is called Katsu Club. So you, you, <laughs> my, my one group chat. Thank you for outing me as a, <laughs> such a social animal, there, Jake. No, yeah, there is a Katsu Club, which um, you know former guest we've had beth webb and friend of the show sam clements and louise we go out and it's sort of like i don't know the margarita pizza maybe you go to a japanese restaurant and you know what you're going to get yeah but you'll always get a slightly different take on on the archetype and um yeah i i know i know i know what you mean it's a it's a it's an an overbearing curry taste but i like it because it's so hearty where as well where's where's the best one that you found on on your travels where's number one at the moment 
apart not so within the UK. Sorry, I should say. Ooh, I, I think I, you know. I'll have to get back to you on that, just because it's been. I mean, obviously, months. It feels like years since we've last been out on on one. But there are, there are a handful uh, to to go to in, in Central. But they all really paled in comparison once we went and tried some in Japan. And it, the funny thing is, you mentioned Ed go, you know, getting um, bento boxes on from train stations. We just love the fact that at train stations or um, you know, you know, in stations you could find curry houses. They'd be really tiny with six or six to twelve seats, but you'd get just the best stuff. So what was you you had one that was top of your list, Jake, couldn't didn't you? How 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 high up the Tokyo food oh, rankings uh, did this curry yes. come? C and C curry chain, uh I really loved, and that ended up in seventh place, which is pretty high. Um that's out of everything that we ate. Um and it had my favorite pickled ginger out of everywhere. And that that was one of my absolute favorite things about being out there was just every single place, a different pickled ginger. Uh, served in a different way, shredded or sliced or even a paste. It was wonderful. One of my favorite flavors. Was it CNC you trying to then recreate at home with the actual pack? Yes. Uh, safe to say it was not. The same. <laughs> <laughs> um, but number one on that list was some yakitori that we had. And Ed, I don't know if, if you ventured down to Pierce Alley for some yakitori. Um, but I got some strange looks from, from Michael and Steph for going in for some intestine and some gizzard. Um, you've got to do it. You've got to do you. it. If you've got, you've got to, you've got to try all that stuff, I think. Um, and I quite like it, to be honest. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll delve into any of that. Yeah. We went to, um, we went down to like the golden guy area, isn't it? With like, uh, yeah, all of the yakitori places and just they're essentially just like, some grotty pubs with a grill behind the bar, uh, which is ideal for me. We actually got we got engaged in Japan on like the first day of the holiday, uh, and then that night we basically did the most touristy things we possibly could. We were, we went to the robot show in uh, in Tokyo, uh, and then we went and got some yakitori in the Golden Guy, and it was such a brilliant night. And you you don't expect much really when you see the places, and then the yakitori was just phenomenal, just absolutely yeah. brilliant. And it is really simple. Um, it is just, uh, it's a skewer with bits of meat turned over hot coals, but it's just in the absolute tiniest location. And the guy, I definitely saw him burn himself a few times in the process. Something exploded. We're still not sure what it was. <laughs> a lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So, Ed, you said you've got to go for it with these things. Uh, I was not brave enough to go for one item on the menu, which was the uh, chicken womb. Would you have done it? Uh, mm, yeah, I think I probably would have done. I feel like they could sell it a bit better and not call it chicken womb. I think there might be a more poetic name for it than chicken womb. I don't know what, what that would be, but chicken womb is a big turn off for me. <laughs> the other thing I didn't actually see, but I'd heard as a thing is eating chicken rare. Um, oh, which I, that I would stop short of, of rare chicken, I think. Yeah, chicken sushi exists, uh, and it's it's a dangerous thing. Um, but that does make me think we 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 will get on to dessert, but we must we can't do a chat about Japanese food and not mention sushi. Um, and that that was wonderful. A place that we went to, Himawari Sushi, was incredible. I think we didn't do any like really high end sushi stuff, which is something we we felt like we missed out on. And next time we go, because I think we're going to go back in a couple of years, hopefully. Uh, then you know we'll we'll find the sort of a, a really nice sushi place and book it in advance and make sure we can go and enjoy that. Uh, but uh, we we went at complete opposite end of the scale to what you were saying about being able to see the make it and it's you know part of the process and stuff. We went to a place in Tokyo. Uh, we went twice uh, called Genki Sushi, and it's the only place we went to twice because it's amazing. You, you type where you want in an iPad and it whizzes <laughs> along a train and comes to you personally. How can you not? It's just phenomenal. I loved oh, it. We went and we loved it. <laughs> it's so, And you know what? It's really good sushi as well. Like they are, they yeah. are hand making it in the back and then like the rice is still warm when it arrives. It's, you know, you can see how it's been cut properly. It's, and it's delicious sushi, but the, possibility to overspend in that scenario is ridiculous because i wasn't checking how much i was spending i was just enjoying hitting buttons and even when i was full i was just going well i just like pressing buttons very disappointed when i ordered a beer and it didn't come flying down the the <laughs> conveyor belt ed i think you'd be a good pavlovian dog yeah just, absolutely just need <laughs> eat that yeah, button like, and some food i think that's the only place we went twice um and in very quick succession as well just because i love pressing those buttons we also went to a dump a dumpling place in tokyo um there was like everything stacked on top of everything stacked on top of each other like quite often you'll have to go and find somebody you're like well it says it's here and then you look up and you've got to go up to the third floor uh and it was just a bar that did gyoza and but you order it on an ipad and i'm pretty sure they were just using like decent frozen gyoza and just frying them and then bringing them to you but we were just hitting order after order we must have had about a hundred dumplings it's incredible ah <laughs> oh, well uh after a hundred dumplings you'd be pretty full but we must try and find some room for dessert um but ed you are diabetic so this could be a bit of a minefield 
Um, so what would you be normally thinking at this point if you're out for a Japanese meal? Because I know you're, you're more of a fan of a cheese board, which is not so popular out there. Sure. Uh, you know, if, but, you know, if I'm out and, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a dessert and I'll just, you know, inject me insulin. Um, but I, found, I, find, I actually find Japanese desserts slightly trickier. They're not necessarily completely up my street. Um, and I found it more difficult with Ghibli as well. I don't know. There's definitely, I think there's more for the savory connoisseur in Ghibli. Um, a lot of nice cakes and things though. Uh, and I just picked just cause it's a nice scene and it's, uh, a lovely part of the film, the chocolate cake that Kiki gets given in Kiki's delivery service. It, it does look delicious, but also she, she tries so hard and then she gets a nice cake. Mm. It's very sweet and probably very sweet, but yeah. both, both meanings <laughs> of the word. <laughs> You're right. It's actually quite hard to pinpoint specific dessert. Uh, moments in in Ghibli. The one I went for was going back to Ponyo, in fact, um, when he has his little ice cream cone, Sosuke, and he's looking so grumpy. But I'd situate myself in the driver's seat of the car in that scene, Lisa the mum, who leans over and takes a one huge tongueful (laughs) of uh, a scoop of the ice cream out of of his uh, cone. That looks really good. It looks like almost like Hayao Miyazaki's perfect Mr. Whippy is what that ice cream is. I did have a... I had a very... A very nice matcha soft serve when we were in mm. Miyajima because Miyajima's got quite it's it's got deer as well similar to Nara, um, so they uh, all the like little touristy ice cream places do uh, something which is like a matcha soft serve or you know vanilla soft serve but with little um, chocolate balls on top which uh, to represent the the deer droppings. <laughs> so it's wow. supposed to be like deer poo on an ice cream. <laughs> And obviously that made me laugh because I've got a very uh, childish sense of humor. So I went and bought one of those. It was very, very nice. has to be done. Um, well, my one is something called Siberia. Uh, I actually, had, I didn't know that was what it called when I picked it. Uh, but this is from The Wind Rises, which is uh, it's a sponge cake on either side with a red bean filling in between. But it's packaged like a sando. And I think that is beautifully presented in the film. Um, but then I, I had to look up why it's called a Siberia, um, but no one really knows. Like it, <laughs> huh. uh, apparently, it could have come directly from Russia and then repurposed in using Japanese ingredients, but because of it looking like a black strip down between two white sides could also be a reference to the um, Trans-Siberian Railroad. But uh, what is so cool about the Siberia, again, you can tell that I went hard on the Siberia research, um, that it was only popular at the start of the 20th century in Japan and died out around the war. And then the Wind Rises comes out, obviously set around just the pre-war period. And now the Siberia is popular again and is having to be packaged and is now stocked in 7-Elevens. Amazing. That uh, the red bean paste, were, I didn't like initially. I had that in a couple of things when we arrived, but then really fully got on board with it because there's everywhere you go, they're selling those. I think it's taiyaki, the the fish uh, shaped like uh, fried things with like fried dough with the with the red bean paste inside. It's so delicious. We ate so much food just walking around, just so many different places selling amazing little bits and snacks and. Even that, that day we got engaged, we went to a temple and I had, I think, one of the best things I ate all trip, which was just a roll, of, like rice, just like a roll of rice with very, very thin cut pork around it and then just uh, flash fried on a grill. It was just 
phenomenal. <laughs> but in fact, oh. the Taiyaki we had on the first day because we arrived, couldn't check into the hotel and we were on our way. We wanted to go and visit something, but it was like a two hour walk. And we were like, we may as well. We've got loads of time to fill. And we were just walking around and grabbed one of those Taiyaki and I can barely remember it because we were so jet lagged, but just incredible. So good. Did you go to a Mr. Donut in your time there? No, we didn't go to a Mr. Donut. I wish we had now. Yeah, I I loved Mr. Donut. Um, and they have an item called a Ponder Ring, which is, imagine all the little donut holes that have then been joined together like a chain link circle and then fried off. Amazing. And then dipping those into some coffee was heaven. Uh, I know it's not the most Japanese thing, but a ponder ring was a lovely dessert that I, w- I would happily have every day. Well, also, if you wanted to make it more Japanese, they did have the branded Pokemon donuts that we had in the same trip to Mr. Donut. Yeah. So we have some very cute pictures of producer Steph with, was it Pikachu? Yeah, we can put that alongside form. eating Totoro and eating <laughs> Ponyo. We can we ate Pikachu as well. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, did you do, I mean, I listened to some of your, uh, your Japan episode, um, and one of you went to the cafe, right, for the Totoro cream puff. Mm-hmm. We, we went and did that as well. That was, that was a pretty amazing trip. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's the fact that, you know, we, we'd read about it, but it really felt like a proper excursion pilgrimage, tracking it down. And they were so, lovingly created yeah. we talk about the films and how they they lovingly animate and design these scenes just a little cream puff you wouldn't expect to have so much um care and attention made into them but you know they, they were gorgeous do you remember what flavors you ate i had a chocolate one i think mm-hmm. i always if there's chocolate available as an option I'm, I'm always getting chocolate i think we got all flavors we did available <laughs> yeah we, and i'm surprised we didn't <laughs> what was the ranking in the end was it Oh god. Vanilla I, was up there? Yeah, I think it was it was uh chocolate, vanilla, chestnut and strawberry cheesecake at the bottom cuz Oh yeah, that was too rich. What an incredible sounding menu. Um Ed, would you mind recapping what your three Ghibli items were there? Absolutely. My starter is soup dumplings from uh, the Pig Buffet at Spirit- in Spirited Away. Uh, my main course is ramen from Ponyo, uh, and my dessert is the chocolate cake from Kiki's Delivery Service. Michael, what was yours? So I have the very Japanese uh, choices here of a nice little omelette from Kiki's Delivery Service for starter, the spaghetti bolognese from Porco Rosso for my big main, and then afters would be the ultimate Miyazaki Mr. Whippy ice cream cone from Ponyo. Lovely. And I went for the bento box from My Neighbor Totoro, joining Ed with Ponyo's ramen and finishing it off with a slice of Siberia from The Wind Rises. Now, Ed, uh, that might be the end of the Food Ghibli chat for now, but Michael has been kind enough to uh, indulge me on this food-centric chat. Um, But I wanted to take up the opportunity to bring up something totally unrelated because, Ed, both you and Michael don't instantly seem to be recognizable heavy metal fans. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Michael has more of a metal vibe about him, to be honest. Is this because of the lockdown beard? It's because it's not, <laughs> surely not just a lot. Is that only happened during lockdown? I'd say this is the longest the beard has ever been. Uh, I've, I've had some form of beard for 
for 20 years, but I am looking particularly Viking, I'd say. Today. Viking. Okay, thank you very much. That's, yeah, that's, I'd I'll say that, that you've compliment. got a sort of Viking heavy metal. Yeah, me, I mean, I've got I've got a moustache which I've grown during lockdown, which is the first time I've had any form of facial hair whatsoever. So normally I just look like a choir boy, basically. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a very unlikely heavy metal guy. I'd love to know what Jake's mental image of a metalhead is that that we, we are not conforming to. What is it, Jake? Um, Who do you have in your head? Well, neither of you have long enough hair. Actually, I don't know if anyone ever saw the third iteration of Skins, uh, and oh, no. there's a there's a long haired lad who he I remember him screaming the line, "I'm metal. It's who I am." And then in that episode, he gets like a one-off napalm death record, plays it as loud as he can until he makes himself deaf. So in my head, that is a that is a metal fan, uh, which neither of you seem to adhere to. Um, but Ed, so the I, whole I, journey, no, I, I can safely say I've never shouted "I'm metal." That's who I am. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've, you've said it now, and people are going to yeah. snip that out. <laughs> Um, so this whole podcast was about getting me into his animation, which Michael successfully achieved. Uh, if I had to have one metal album to get me into it, what would oh. that be? <laughs> That's a very hard question. I'm sure Michael can attest to that uh, because if we're talking about getting you into metal, it's re- it's really hard because it's there's so many subgenres and it's such a it, it's such a massive sprawling thing the roots that come off everything and it's it's so hard it it depends what sort of genre we think would be a good entry level thing um but then you start thinking about you must have like you must have heard like metallica and stuff like that that's the sort of normally considered entry level metal yeah i i've listened to that kind of thing i've never really put the time in to it though um i don't know so I, I checked an article that you had done about some key metal albums around your your life, and I sent that to Michael, and uh, he he said that you were more on the baggy short side of things. Well, that uh, that's so that was my entry that was my entry into metal. So now probably I still have a you know a real nostalgic love for that sort of like late nineties, early noughties new metal, but it's certainly not what I would consider to be the best metal. Um, depends what so, what's so, Michael so, into. We might even be speak, you know, you say we're both metalheads, but we might like completely different things. That is the amazing thing. But first of all, you understood what baggy shorts metal. Yeah, what I meant by that. Yes, because Jake was like, "What the hell are you saying here? This is an insane, <laughs> <laughs> insane term." Well, yeah, it's such a broad church, isn't it? Lo- looking at that list that you put together, I know that you're saying it's quite skewed to s- certain points of your life. Um, as I've grown older, I tend to go a bit more back. Uh, I wasn't really a fan. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think we're of a similar age, so I, I, it was still the late 90s, early 2000s, new metal boom, where you may be tempted in with uh, Limp Biscuits or Corns or Linkin Park, but then you'd go deeper and hear a Slayer or Pantera or um, maybe Tool if you wanted to be a bit beard strokey. Um, and... But then as I've grown older, I've gone further back and find myself listening more to the new wave of British heavy metal, early thrash, and then splintering off into death and black and all of the subgenres that we said. So yeah, it's almost impossible to pick the one album to turn Jake onto metal because what would that even be? And are you trying to then put on the shoulders of this one album a whole industry? 
Um, but I suppose it is a case of if there's one album that you think everyone should hear that may just happen to fall under the umbrella of the family of metal, is there one you'd pick? From more recent, from more recent uh, albums, uh, so I was uh, rec- I was looking through my albums of the decade, basically, and I'm going to quickly look because I've got my records here. Let's go right here. Oh, nice. how, how into this you are, Michael? But there's a band called Baroness um, mm-hmm. who have released some phenomenal albums, and this this is Purple, uh, which I don't. Uh, do I don't think it's necessarily my favourite Baroness album. There's uh, yellow and green, there's blue and there's red. I think blue or red would be my favourite. But this, if you're getting into metal, I think it's great because they it's a more mainstream sound. It's incredibly produced. It's It sounds more like a sort of arena-filling metal album. Uh, and John Baisley, who's the lead singer, is a phenomenal artist and just his voice is so... It's it's got the aggression you need to be considered a metal vocalist, but it's also it's incredibly warm uh, and sort of yeah. I'd, I'd say get Baroness Purple. Let's say that. And the great thing about Baroness, I I'm, I'm also into them as well. Um, is they're almost a gateway drug into that sort of slightly more arena skewing sludgy metal um, of bands like High on Fire. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they all have similar vibes and similar sounds sometimes they share band members um you know sleep and so on you know for this sort of post 90s uh sludgy doom stoner metal thing i that's mean that's definitely that's what that's where i'd position myself if someone said what's your favorite genre it would be it would be that that level of metal i think sludge stoner doom Great. Okay. Well, I'm glad I got a recommendation there because I was a bit concerned when Michael's first reaction to me was saying, I guarantee you he likes Boris, which is probably not a sentence you wanted to agree with at this point. <laughs> I've not done enough research into Boris. You know, they're one of those bands who whose discography is so crazy, like in terms of they've tried loads of different stuff, right? So mm-hmm. I'm yet to find the album that I enjoy. And then I'm worried that if I find that album, then they're not going to have done another album like it. Oh, well, I, I'd strongly recommend Pink, which was their yeah. breakthrough album, you know, big on Pitchfork at the time, however, God, nearly 20 years ago now, 15 years ago. Um, but yeah, they change genre all the time, but that's the one where they, I think, nail the sound the best, where it's a bit shoegazy yeah. at times, very noisy, but then there'll be this two and a half minute garage fuzz metal freak out type track great which I, i'd love it's fantastic i actually i've got one boris thing i'm not going to go through my records but uh i bought just because i was in a record shop and they had it it's like a it was a test pressing of a split they did with torch and torch are oh, like yeah. one of my favorite bands so yeah oh, they're brilliant yeah, yeah that's that's the sort of sort of stuff i'm into okay and not to veer this too much to what we were originally talking about but is there much in the way of japanese metal i need to be aware of oh it's that's tricky you know i don't think i mean i i think we'd be remiss to not mention uh the absolute japanese metal monolith that is baby metal um Mm -hmm. who have just become huge in the in the last few years uh and i don't know whether that's now turned into a movement in japan in terms of those those sorts of bands like girl bands who play metal but they're they're kind of incredible i would never listen to them on record but i saw them at sonosphere festival a few years ago and it was absolutely amazing 
yeah, I, I, I love them for the spectacle of them. And yeah. Jake, I don't know if you've heard any baby metal, but it's basically like a, no a, a girl, a girl band, almost like an idol band with backed by sort of like a symphonic metal almost um, backing. And it's a wonderful marriage of J-pop and extreme metal. And they've been phenomenally popular the world over. Yeah, they did Wembley here, I think. But yeah, it, it, it is interesting. Uh, uh, yeah, like Metal is huge in Japan, but very few Japanese metal bands have gone international. Um, Boris being one of them, and that's because they almost slipped through via pitchfork, indie sort of thing, hipster metal. Um, baby metal, of course, will likely be on the front cover of Metal Hammer or whatever nowadays. There's a, band, and a few other bands on my radar. I don't know, Jake, this is probably too... <laughs> Two down the rabbit hole for you. Don't listen. Don't listen to these bands. But there's a band called Sai who were yeah. um, very early on in the sort of Norwegian black metal days. They were that they aligned themselves with um, with those bands. There's a band X who are kind of more hair metal, more glam rock. But there's a really great documentary about them a couple of years ago called We Are X. Um, and I don't know. There's one band I've been listening to recently. Um, because I saw one of their albums in a record store in Japan and just wanted to do some more research before spending 30 quid on it. Um, they're a band called Outrage. Okay. And, I'll check um, them out. I'll write that the, down, actually. The great thing about Outrage, and if this is a, a double-edged compliment here, is they're from the late 80s, early 90s, but they are sort of what if Metallica after And Justice For All just kept cranking out And Justice For All. Great. So they're like a Metallica tribute act, a really proficient one, but that specific sort of technical thrash, uh, progressive thrash metal they had on and Justice for All. And they're really fun. And all their stuff's on Spotify, which is really exciting. That stuff would have been really tricky to get hold of, like even five years ago. Yeah, that's what's great. Actually, actually there's, there's a band that I was told about fairly recently, and you can find bits of them on Spotify, but I think that you have to delve a bit, a bit deeper for them maybe. Uh, a sort of a, like a hardcore slash metal band um, called Friendship, which I think is the best... Right the best name for a horrible sounding band ever. It's like friendship all in, cap, in, in caps lock. So they're, they're worth checking out. But no, apart from that, I don't really, I'm, I'm not really uh, across, across the Japanese metal scene. Um, apart from oh, the other one, I just wanted to double check the name. Um, Church of Misery. All right. Who are a very Sabbathy doom band who might be, might be worth a, worth a little listen. But yeah, that's my, that's the extent of my Japanese metal knowledge. Wow, uh, I know that they say that in podcasting you need to find a niche, but I think we've we've like channeled niches uh, yeah. beyond niches beyond <laughs> niches here, um, and we, we're probably at the bottom of the barrel of niches. Um, and with that, I expect the anime Japanese heavy metal podcast to be sprouting up any minute now. <laughs> there's there's probably room there's probably room somewhere for a Ghibli themed metal band. <laughs> Ooh. because I, mean, I i think you could like like metal bands are just it's metal is just another sort of like geek culture really it's just it's just a different flavor of nerd right so it's just if you want to go all in on something like there's lord of the rings metal bands there's there's a a, a death metal band themed on ned flanders you know we can we mm -hmm. can definitely come up with some sort of ghibli ghibli based metal band i don't know what's the most metal ghibli film Princess Mononoke yeah. has beheadings and arms being ripped off and all that. But this is the great thing. There's, there was a, f a phase maybe that started maybe 20 years ago, 15 years ago, of Nintendo or video game themed metal bands. 
or math rock bands where they'd be taking famous themes from Nintendo games of the 80s and then just trying to play them uh, with with a you know guitar bass and drums i think you could do that get the greatest hits of uh, joe hisaishi totoro theme ponyo theme etc and you know, re- recompose rearrange them for a metal band i think you can do that really easily i can imagine that could a, be our, our route to success yeah. jake <laughs> i could imagine a backdrop of uh Totoro, but with like black metal corpse paint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It would work perfectly. <laughs> okay. Um, on on those horrible images, uh, maybe that's a good point to wrap up. Um, <laughs> Ed, thanks for coming on and talking Ghibli food and uh, so much heavy metal chat as well. Thanks very much for having me. Huge thanks to Ed for joining us and spending time with us on a quite indulgent episode. But all good menus have a bit of indulgence in them anyway, don't they? So I think it's all right. As I said before, if you'd like to hear more from Ed, check out the podcast Off Menu and Lifers. And now that we've finished eating, Michael, what's next on the podcast? Ooh, a slight change of course for the podcast uh, up next. So we've spoken about Studio Ghibli's films for nearly two years now. We've got to the end of the main bulk of their films. We're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a mini series dedicated to, I think, one of the few filmmakers who have an international stature, anything approaching Studio Ghibli, and that is Satoshi Kon, another filmmaker whose films you haven't seen any of yet, but I've seen all of them. I think we'll also bring in producer Steph, who's a big fan of his work for an extra point of view because his films are very different to Ghibli the likes of Perfect Blue, Millennium Actress Tokyo Godfather's Paprika they're much more complicated a bit more adult themed as well so something a bit different a whole new bunch of homework for you Jake cannot wait to get stuck into them now if you want to keep up with us you can do that on Twitter where we are at Ghibliotech and Michael is on Twitter at Michael J Leader And you can follow Jake at Jake H. Cunningham. Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our music is made by Anthony Ng, our artwork is by Sophie Moe, and Jamie Maisner is our audio wizard. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill and Steph Watts. That's me. Thanks for sticking with us through the credits on this one. Now, a bit of a food-related nugget for you this week. And this may have come up in our Tale of Princess Kaguya episode, but in case you didn't listen to that one, when Isao Takahata was making Grave of the Fireflies, you might remember a scene involving a melon. And you may not remember specifically how one of the characters cut into that melon, but Takahata certainly remembered. And that's why if you watch Tale of the Princess Kaguya, there's another scene involving a melon and the cutting of the melon is slightly different. And so that's basically because over 30 years, it kept bugging him that the animation on that wasn't quite right. And so he spent a long, long time redoing that melon cut. 
Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.